You may be seated. Welcome to Westminster. Thank you to Tration and the Encounter Band. When, when you came in this morning, you passed the table that has our connection cards in it. If you didn't get one of these, uh, go ahead and grab one during the greeting time. This is our way of keeping track of who's here, and it's also your way of communicating with us. If you've got a question, if you want to sign up for something, or if you just have a prayer request, you can write it on this, write your email address or your phone number, drop it in the off in the clear box on your way out, and we'll get in touch with you sometime this week. Also in the back, we have the prepackaged communion. Today we'll be celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion in the service, and we're going to be doing it the old-fashioned way, but we also have this way available if you prefer. And so during the greeting time, if you want these and you didn't pick one up, go pick one up in the back. Friends, would you join with me in a word of prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit into this time of worship? Gracious Almighty God, out of the noise and chaos of the world, we've come into this place of worship to stand on holy ground and to immerse ourselves again in your story and to remind ourselves that we are your people. We are not our, our own, and we are not alone. We are vessels of the Holy Spirit, living our lives in community with those who have gone on before us. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Fill this place. Fill our hearts, fill our minds, and fill this place. That this might be set apart from the world for just a few moments as we worship you together. This we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, just a word of instruction, after we are done with the greeting time, you will hear what we call the sheep song start playing, and that's when all the kids are going to come to the front for the children's message. But before then, I'm going to invite you all to stand. Thank you so many children. Okay, before I get started, I just want to say a, a quick note for those of you who live in the area. This Saturday is our Easter After Dark, which we're so excited about. If you live on a street that's not a cul-de-sac, we have four extra yard signs, um, and we'd appreciate four of you taking them and putting them up in your yard to help us advertise to all of our neighbors. Uh, Easter After Dark is coming up this Saturday. Okay, it's quieter now, so let's get started. <laughs> Friends, we are in Exodus. So we have started, two weeks ago, we started with this kind of foundational, what is Exodus about? And we were introduced to the Israelites in slavery. If you missed that sermon, I would encourage you, everything's on the website. Two weeks ago, what we set up with the, the start of Exodus is this idea that the Pharaoh figure is this almost archetype of evil. That what we have gotten in Exodus is we've gotten the next level of what happens after Genesis. So Genesis, the brokenness of the world, is primarily within the families. And so we hear story after story in Genesis of what happens when evil is perpetrated within families, starting with Cain and Abel right at the beginning of the book. Exodus, what we see is that the evil has gone next level. <laughs> and we have Pharaoh who was only called Pharaoh, which is tipping us off that this is a kind of an archetype of the evil king, of the madman, of the tyrant, of the one that exists in every generation that is going to set himself up in opposition to God. And what happens in the first two chapters is that the Egyptians, through Pharaoh, enslave the Israelites, but not just enslave them, oppress them, 
uh, they had this, Pharaoh gives this order to kill every Israelite baby boy, every Hebrew baby boy by throwing him in the Nile. So it's not just um, economic oppression, it's wholehearted evil, right? And so what we have in these first couple of chapters is this setup of what happens when sin reaches its apex and and the image that's being presented is that you remember that the earth was God's, right? God created the earth to be his dwelling place, to be his, his temple, his creation. He is the ruler. He's the owner. He's the king. He is the, the one who made this earth to dwell in it. And what's being presented in the first couple of chapters of Exodus is that is now turned on its head. And through br- the brokenness of Genesis 3 gone wild, we have somebody setting himself up in God's place. And Pharaoh is fundamentally claiming the rights that are only God's. Pharaoh is claiming the identity that is only God's. Pharaoh is claiming privileges that are only God's. Only God holds the power of life and death. Only God holds power over, um, ultimate power over people and things. And this Pharaoh is saying, for all intents and purposes, I am God, right? I am the one who is going to declare if this baby lives or dies. I am the one who is going to declare who works and who doesn't. I am the one who is going to hold power over all of these things because functionally, not just functionally, in actuality, Pharaoh is setting himself up to be God. And so the theological question that is presented to us in Exodus is not just what happens when, when sin hits at the family level, the theological question that's presented to to us in Exodus is what happens when sin reaches its natural peak, (laughs) right? What happens when sin reaches its natural climax and there is actually a whole system, a whole order set up that is designed to counter what God's designs for creation are. And even as I'm saying this, you know in your head that this is not philosophical, right? You have taken enough history classes to know that none of this is philosophical. All of this, in actuality, gets played out across the globe over and over and over and over again. In every generation, there is always some kind of system built up that fundamentally opposes God's designs for the earth. And there are over and over and over again countless examples of people who have built themselves up to be gods instead of God. And so the Exodus is the first theological answer we get in the Bible about what does God think about that? And what is God going to do about it? And let me tell you, what we're starting this week and going through the next two weeks, it's going to get very graphic. It's going to get very dark. I have heard many people say that ex- these chapters of Exodus should not be in the Bible because they, they, oh, what some, they show God in a bad light or they're overly violent. I I hear all of that, and I think those critiques are coming from a place of comfort and privilege. <laughs> that has never personally experienced the atrocities that were natural to most of the rest of humanity across the course of human history. Across the course of human history, it would have been, in many different cultures, in many different places, it would have been normal to see a child killed 
by a leader who thought that he had life and death authority over your children. And I want you to imagine growing up where something like that was your reality and thinking, what does God do about that? God's answer in Exodus matches the atrocities that humans themselves have come up with. And what God is going to do about this fundamentally is prove once and for all that he does not take evil lightly and he does not take wickedness lightly. And I don't use that term wickedness lightly. I know that gets thrown around a lot. He does not take the Holocaust lightly. He does not take the atrocities of South Africa lightly. He does not take, pick your poison, go back through your, your knowledge of history. He does not take that lightly. That is what Exodus is about. And what's going to start right now, this is where we're starting, Exodus 7, is God's response to Pharaoh. God's response to Pharaoh. So here's what happens. God, last week, we, we um, had the, the, the incident of the burning bush where God chose one person to be his stand-in. And what he says is, you will be like God. You will give them my words. You will direct them for me. You will be the stand-in for me, and I will speak to you, and you will speak to them. Now, there's a little side story about how Moses didn't want to do that, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so God gave him a partner to work with, <laughs> um, which I, I love the fact that that's in Exodus because it's so human, right? It's so real. Like that, that story feels real. God calling someone and them saying, I don't think so, God. That sounds like a terrible idea. And what, what happens after that, after, after we have, like, the team, the reluctant team of Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh, is what happens after that is, is a showdown. God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and says, let my people go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to our God. Now, you notice he's not even asking at that point, let my people go. I mean, it's kind of implied that they're never going to come back. But he starts with, let my people go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to God. And Pharaoh says no. And we're going to come back to this, but there's this very, very tantalizing phrase there. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Earlier we had heard God say, Pharaoh is going to say no, and I will harden his heart. And that language comes up later, but at the beginning... Pharaoh actually hardens his own heart. He hears that. He hardens his heart. In fact, if your translation says Pharaoh's heart was hardened for the first time, it's wrong. That's a wrong translation. Pharaoh hardens his heart for the first five times he is approached. He hardens his heart, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so Moses and Aaron bring the first plague. And the first plague is Moses um, stretches his staff out, touches the waters of the Nile, and it turns to blood. I want you to think about what's happening there. First of all, water was the first element of creation back in the beginning. After there was light, then it was the dividing of the waters. Water was the element that God used to kind of uncreate the earth in Noah. And water was the element that Pharaoh had co-opted to kill all those baby boys. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, but the means by which the baby boys were to be killed is they were to be thrown in the Nile. And God is now revealing the, the blood 
that is on their hands by saying, I'm going to turn this river to blood. And there's, so there's kind of two elements in the one. It's, it's, it's revealing the, the means by which all that violence was committed. That, okay, like, you, you caused this blood. I'm going to literally make this blood. The second undercurrent is God saying, whose water do you think this is? Whose water do you think this is? Who do you think put this here to begin with? And I'll tell you what, the, for the first two plagues, what happens is the Egyptians go back, and because the Egyptians are able to do it themselves, Pharaoh says this is nothing special, which tells you where Pharaoh's coming from, right? It's not just that Pharaoh is at war with God. Pharaoh thinks he is God. Pharaoh thinks that ultimately, if there came a battle between himself and God, he would win because he is king, and he is Lord, and he is Pharaoh. And that is exactly what God is about to prove wrong, both to Pharaoh and to the world, and to every Pharaoh that will exist for the rest of eternity. So the first plague is water turning to blood, and then what we have after that is a series of plagues and if you pay attention to it, God almost walks through the steps of creation again. So then there are frogs that live in the water, and there's this plague of frogs. And this is, I actually find this part kind of funny. The magicians are also able to create frogs, and so Pharaoh's like, this is nothing special. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't fix your problem, did you, right? <laughs> you just created more frogs. <laughs> um, but, so then he hardens his heart again and says, we will not let, I will not let your people go. And then he starts to do things that Pharaoh can't do. So then there are flies and there are gnats. And so if you notice, we started with water, then we have creatures that live in the water, then we have creatures that live outside of the water. And then we have livestock. And it starts to get to things that the, the magicians cannot replicate. And so there, there is a point at which Pharaoh kind of starts bargaining. He says, okay, I'll let you go for one day. And Moses says, no, we have to go for three days. And Pharaoh says, no, no deal. He says, okay, you get another plague. And so these plagues go on and on and on. And there is this sense because all of these, I mean, presumably God can do whatever he wants to do, right? He could send an army of angels. But what he's doing here is he's using the elements of creation. And there is this sense of whose, whose world do you think this is, right? <laughs> whose land do you think you're living on? <laughs> Whose, whose river do you think this was in the first place? And God is reasserting the fact that this is his, and Pharaoh is an imposter. And so throughout these plagues, he walks through the, the order of creation until we get to the, live, the, the, the um, plague against the livestock, and then there's a plague of human, boils against humans, which brings us to kind of the last day of creation. And then he almost starts going backwards, <laughs> Because he gets all the way back to where the last plague is darkness. And you remember that the very first line of the Bible is God says, let there be light. Meaning that the pre-creation reality was this darkness over the face of the earth. And so Egypt is plunged into darkness. So God has done all of it, the creation, forwards and backwards. And left Egypt in this pitch black darkness all alone and still pharaoh says no i will not let these people go what is happening in this section and we're gonna next week we're gonna focus entirely on the passover which is that last light night the last plague 
So what I want to focus on this morning is, is the, the plagues overall, these first nine plagues leading up to it, what God is doing, why this is here. Because what is happening here is fundamentally a showdown between God and Pharaoh, whereby God is proving to Pharaoh in the world who he is and who Pharaoh is not. He is using the elements of creation to remind Pharaoh who he is and who Pharaoh is not, and to demonstrate to Egypt and Israel and the world who he is and who Pharaoh is not. And he is being very graphic with it because he is matching the level of violence that Pharaoh himself enacted against the people under him. And in this giant, massive public showdown, he is proving Pharaoh's folly and his lie. And at some point, you realize that there is more going on here. This is not an economic um, discussion of costs and benefits, because at some point, Egypt is definitely on the losing side, and they don't seem to figure it out, right? So at the beginning, maybe you could have you made an argument that this is random, this is just happening. As it goes on and on and on, Pharaoh digs in his heels even though he knows he's losing. Pharaoh digs in his heels even though he knows he's losing. And I want to say, I think there are, there are two things, specifically two things that we learn from this particular interaction that are incredibly important for us and are going to pave the way for the conversation next week but are also just incredibly important for us as humans in understanding the nature of the world we live in and the nature of evil. And those two things are this. First of all, I want to think with you about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, because what happens is the first five times Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh, he hardens his own heart. The first five times Moses and Aaron approach him, in some kind of language, it's either, it does not say God hardened his heart, it says his heart is hardened, or he hardened his heart, or, or two times it specifically says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then after that, it specifically says God then hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's almost this image there that in, in some of the mystery of what evil looks like when it is played out at a human level, there does seem to be this almost point of no return, right? That you can, you can harden your heart to the point that you put yourself beyond the realm of turning back. And let me tell you, that is very terrifying for me to say out loud as a pastor and as a person, because I preach and I will always preach, there is always a way home, there is always a way back, and yet I think that the reason this is in the scriptures is that the reality of how this plays out is that if we dig in our heels enough, there comes a point at which we're not going to turn back. There comes a point at which we're not going to turn back. Not that that road is not open, not that that path is not always in front of us. But there comes a point at which we're not going to take it anymore. And I find that sobering. And I hope you do too, because here's the thing. None of us are pharaohs. None of us, frankly, have enough power to be a pharaoh. <laughs> but I truly believe within the depths of my heart that we all, all of us, everyone, myself included, have within us the seeds of that capability because we are human. And what keeps us from that, first of all, is, is luck and circumstance, and also the grace of God and the humility to know that we are not God. And I want to tell you, I am not Pharaoh, 
I have never had even the opportunity to commit genocide against baby boys. And I don't think I would have taken it if I had. And yet, I know what it feels like to harden my heart. I know that feeling. There was one time as I was preparing for the service, I had this memory come to my head. And it was this memory of being so angry at a friend. So angry at a friend. For a lot of reasons. I'm not going to get into the details here. But I was so angry. And I could feel in my body how right I was. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before. But like I could, I could feel it. It was actually a physical sensation in this area, in my chest area. It was my physical sensation of how angry I was at them and how justified I was and how righteous I was and how wrong they were. And I remember talking to a friend at that point, and she said, you know what, Meredith, you really need to pray for God to soften your heart. And I was like, that's the last thing I want to pray for. I'm going to pray for God to smite. I'm going to pray for God to change their heart. I'm going to pray for God to show them that I am right. That's my prayer request. And Exodus says, be careful. Be careful. This is a cautionary tale. Because while we are not Pharaoh, we have all within ourselves the seeds of the evil we hate most in the world. And it starts with the hardening of our heart against the word of God and the invitation of God. And you know what? God will prove who is right in the end. Just, and Exodus is about God will justify in the end, right? God will t throw down Pharaoh in the end, and he does it all on his own without our help. God will rectify in the end, and our heart does not need to be hardened in order for that to happen, and all that we stand to lose with the hardening of our hearts against the presence of God is our own soul. And the cautionary tale here that is being presented to us in Pharaoh is that the first hardening you can get over, and the second hardening you can get over, and the third hardening you can get over, and the fourth hardening you can get over. But I'll tell you what, there comes a point, if the hardening of your heart becomes a habit by which you live, there comes a point at which you're not going to take the step anymore. You're not going to take the invitation anymore. Your heart is so hard that even the invitation of God to come and soften it is an invitation you simply do not receive because you don't want it. And that is the cautionary tale that is spoken to us in this part of Exodus. The hardening of the heart is real and it is dangerous. And if at the end of our lives, even though we are not a Pharaoh, we have hardened our heart against the will of God, we will be swept away just like Pharaoh was because this earth only has room for one king and one God, and it, it's not us. It's not us. The second reason this is here, and this is where we're really going to get into next week, these chapters, these plagues, are so colorful because they are responding to the <laughs> sheer imagination that human evil has incarnated over the last several thousand years, right? These plagues are so bombastic because evil has been so bombastic. 
And the message that is underneath this is that even the, mo the greatest atrocity you can imagine, even the greatest atrocity you can see, you can think of, even the greatest atrocity that has ever been committed in the history of the world, none of that is outside the power of God to redeem because what God is going to do from this is bring about salvation. And that is what we're focusing on next week and the week after. What God does with this is bring about salvation. And this message of Exodus is that there is no evil in the world that is beyond God's capacity to work with, to redeem, and to bring about salvation through. And that doesn't mean that God approves of Pharaoh. Absolutely, God does not. It doesn't mean that God condones Pharaoh. It means that if Pharaoh could be overcome by God, there is nothing on this earth that cannot be overcome by God. And I want to tell you, folks, that should be a word of comfort. Because if you watch the news, you feel helpless. If you watch the news, you feel hopeless sometimes. And if you just look at the stories of all of the atrocities that happen across the face of the earth, it is very, very easy to step back and to say, where is God? And Exodus gives us our answer for that. Exodus proclaims and declares that there is no evil on this earth beyond the reach of God, beyond the capacity of God to bring into the story of his salvation. And how he does it is where we're going to get into next week. But that he does it, that he does it, is where we stand in our faith. When we read these stories, when we read these plagues, and we remember that God is God, that God is king, that God is ruler, and that this earth belongs to God despite all of those who would pretend otherwise. And the climax of what that story looks like is where we're going to get into next week. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty Heavenly Father, you have given us so much. You've invited us into your story. And you have reminded us that there is no power on this earth that is equal to yours. There is no tyrant who will not be overthrown. There is no empire that will not fall. There is no system of evil or oppression or injustice that will not be drowned in the closing waters of the Red Sea so that your kingdom and your shalom will win in the end. God, for the times we have hardened our hearts against you, forgive us, we pray. For the times we have hardened our hearts against your invitation and your story, forgive us, we pray. For the times we have chosen bitterness and unforgiveness. For the times we have chosen anger and unrepentance. For the times we have chosen what is not of God instead of what is of God. Forgive us, we pray. Soften our hearts. Open our spirits. Allow us to feast together with you. This we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we say together the prayer our Lord Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the 